I know at least some terrorists <laughs> who, or former terrorists, I should say, who tell me they did read my work while they were active. And it's uh, surreal, you know, when they tell me, oh, you know, I read your work when I was still active and, and they can quote things, you know, from my articles. And one of them actually said, you know, we were worried that the government would take you a lot more seriously because if they did, we would have a lot less success with radicalizing people. Welcome, everybody, to the Going to Extremes podcast by the UNOCT Behavioral Insights Hub in Doha, Qatar. I'm your host, Dave Brundle. Going to Extremes is the podcast for everything you need to know about the latest in behavioral insights and its application to countering terrorism, violent extremism, and radicalization. This is where we debunk the myths surrounding terrorism, dissect the choices people make towards radicalization, and discuss how behavioral insights is applied to prevent violent extremism. This series takes you on a journey from radicalization to reintegration into society. In today's episode, we focus on how and why people are attracted to joining extremist groups and becoming radicalized to commit acts of terrorism. Doha's in-house BI specialist, Ken Reedy, speaks today with Sofia Moskalenko, who is both a social and clinical psychologist, specializing in radicalization, terrorism, self-sacrifice, and mass identity about this initial attraction phase. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation. Sofia Moskalenko, thanks for joining and welcome. So for over 20 years, you've been researching various different facets of radicalization. You've worked on countless projects and you've written seminal texts. Could you take us on a quick whistle-stop tour or discuss the through line which links them all? Huh. When we started thinking about terrorism, there was very little data, very little knowledge. So we had to go with some assumptions. That's what you do in science. And then you gather data and you test the data against those assumptions. And then you, you know, establish whether they were right or wrong. Kind of like we think about people's lives, you know, it's, it's a trajectory, it's, it's a path and it's a smooth path, we thought, where if you kind of step onto this conveyor belt or you get into the first stage of indoctrination or ideological exposure, you then gradually become more and more steeped in it. So the initial assumption was that there was this uh, linear progression from, you know, lowest involvement with ideology to the highest involvement with terrorism violence. And we started looking at data in the form of in-depth case studies of terrorists who were involved in 9-11 and who came after it. And what we discovered and what is now the accepted kind of theory of the field is that our initial assumption was wrong, that very, very rarely is the progression from a disinterested bystander to terrorist is as linear or as inevitable as we first thought. And instead, very often, it's something spontaneous, literally somebody being at the wrong place at the wrong time or hanging out with the wrong crowd or suffering some sort of a major setback in their personal or professional or social life. And at that moment, a terrorist group or a terrorist person turns up and they become this 
you know, conduit through which the person becomes a terrorist. So this discovery of radicalization as being a set of different pathways that are not necessarily linear or sequential, that somebody can come to terrorism very suddenly and even without much of an idea about the ideology. Think about it. Without even understanding what this group that they're affiliating with and participating in activities with is all about. And we can't paint people as radicals based on ideology. That, in fact, the vast majority of people who share a radical ideology will never, ever do anything about it. But if you think about the connection between ideas and actions outside of terrorism, it would make sense. Think about all the good intentions we have, you know, and, and all the ideas we talk about. And think about how little we do about any of it on a day-to-day basis. There's, there's all sorts of um, motivations and mechanisms, how people become involved in terrorism. And we will get into them. But the most intuitive is ideology resulting in extremism. So you believe something and then you act on it. You know, I'm hungry, so I eat. I believe this group of people are evil and the world would be better without them. So I attack them. It's very intuitive. But what are your thoughts on this intuitive relation between ideas leading to action, between extremism leading to terrorism? Well, I think we're very good at deluding ourselves about what is and what isn't intuitive. To take your example, I'm hungry and I eat. Do you always eat only when you're hungry? I mean, I sometimes eat because I am in good company and we're having dinner, even though I'm not hungry. Sometimes I'm eating because I'm bored, you know, and sometimes I'm hungry and I don't eat because I am recording a podcast (laughs) or because, you know, I am doing intermittent fasting or right. So even with something as straightforward as hunger and eating, there are a lot of variables that stand in between your desire and your action. And with something as theoretical as ideology, there are a lot more things that stand between your ideas and your actions. But you're right in saying that it feels intuitive. And this is a very interesting question, you know, why does it feel so intuitive? And there is, again, a huge amount of research in psychology that I find fascinating that explains, you know, how we come to see something as as true and something as valid, um, even when it isn't, which in the case of the connection between ideology and action, that connection is not what we think it is. Is it possible to be attracted to a terrorist group without believing in the cause, that extremist belief? When you say without believing in the cause, there is a range of possibilities. So disbelieving the cause, I think no. But somewhere in the middle of that scale of believing in the cause or not believing it, uh, when somebody is kind of indifferent to the cause, right? When they don't care one way or the other, they're not really even that well aware of the cause. The answer is absolutely. And we have countless examples. One of the most colorful examples of this kind of involvement is Abu Musab al-Zarqawi who was also known as the butcher of Baghdad, who was the head of Al-Qaeda in Baghdad, and whose entire life trajectory was nothing but seeking trouble. This person was 
full of testosterone, just, you know, looking for a fight everywhere he went. And he got into a lot of fights. He was a very bad Muslim. He was kicked out of his mosque. He was covered in tattoos, a practice forbidden in Islam. He was picked up for being drunk, another practice forbidden by Islam. Um, when he finally ended up in prison and realized that, you know, jihad and al-Qaeda was a great platform for his desire for status and violence, he realized that he lacked the ideology. And he was not interested in really learning it. So what he did instead was he befriended somebody, his last name was Magdisi, who was this learned, nerdy ideologue. And so wherever Zarqawi went, he brought Magdisi with him, and he would just kind of put him forth to speak of Islam and to answer your question. Yes, there are a lot of people, including at the very top of terrorist organizations, but more so, of course, you know, at the lower levels, who are in it for something other than ideology and who couldn't really care less about it. So they, they join the group, and then when they're in there, for whatever reason, they then engage in what we would call terrorism. But they didn't join the group for ideological reasons. I'd imagine a lot of people would be very surprised to hear that. That sort of flies in the face of what we think about this. Apparently, Talmudic scholars used to tell their congregants that to make people believe in God, they should find ways to get them into the synagogue and once there, get them to pray. Because once they begin praying, they'll come to believe in what and whom they are praying. So they have to justify that behavior to themselves. And in the process, they become believers. There's a, there's a name for that mechanism. Do you, do you remember what it is? Cognitive dissonance, of course. Would you say that cognitive dissonance plays a role in, in this, in this process that you were talking about with, uh, Sarkawi? I would say cognitive dissonance plays a role in so very many things. It's really one of the, I would say, three most influential theories of social psychology in its entire existence because of how much it explains, you know? So, yeah, we underestimate the degree to which we justify behaviors that we engage in for no good reason, you know, and it extends across different areas of our lives. So it's not surprising that we see that in terrorism. And, you know, yeah, it's counterintuitive. You can apply this idea with cognitive dissonance, the terrorist experience, too, you know, where, yeah, there's a lot of danger in this and, and you lose your your family a lot of times because, you know, you don't want uh, them to be implicated or to judge you. And it becomes all about this identity. But, you know, there is the investment that needs justification. There is the limit that this involvement puts on everything else. So your life becomes all of it. You become addicted. And also there are the highlights. There, There's the the schadenfreude or the pride, all of these things that you get to experience just because you're in this group. Super. It's also a, it's a great segue into my next question. Um, one of the most controversial but empirically sound insights is the role of emotions in decision-making. But when we talk about emotion and radicalization and terrorism, it comes across as really controversial, particularly in the West. Why is that? Very good question. So Western ideas of, you know, being civilized and professional and, uh, you know, good at what you do and, and making the right decisions means separating your emotions from your actions, right? Put your emotions aside and be an adult. That's what we 
teach our children, when we expect them to grow up, that's what we strive for ourselves when we become professionals, including professionals in the field of terrorism research. And so emotions have this connotation of something that is okay for children to have. And as a result of that, there is a pushback from people who don't want to be seen as, even to themselves, um, unprofessional, irrational, less than logical, less than perfectly reasonable. Um, and in their trying to understand terrorists, it's an obstacle because it's a blind spot that they ignore in themselves and therefore in others. So when I teach social psychology, I use textbooks, field textbooks, and I have a stack of them. In 90% of these books, emotion is not even in the index. It's not even in the index. And if not in social psychology class, as an undergraduate majoring in psychology, where are they to learn about emotions, right? So we delegate emotions maybe to some like clinicians, right? So making the choice between thinking about terrorists as crazy and not is not a good choice. We want to be able to think about all the normal kinds of emotions that can precipitate action without labeling somebody as crazy. So I think it's a very important and very much overlooked area of terrorism research that I am working hard to illuminate and to bring attention to. Let's let's go back to emotions because they powerfully in influence how we all make decisions. Terrorists use emotion to great effect to recruit, to lure people to their cause. Would you agree with that? Probably. Some are more successful with it than others. They're more talented propagandists and less talented propagandists. But we don't have to go to terrorists to see the power of emotion in rousing people. So Donald Trump, our previous president, was very talented in rousing emotions and making people do things that they wouldn't do if they hadn't listened to him speak, if they hadn't read his tweets, right? And I think somebody who really understands this disjunction between how we explain and justify things and what actually causes them can do a lot of good and also a lot of damage, right? Because our own blindness to what drives us can be exploited for good and for bad. And so in a way, as a, as a researcher in the field, it should be our goal to identify these blind spots and educate people about them and design protections for populations who are vulnerable to others exploiting these blind spots. Do you think, do we use emotion to any great effect to prevent terrorism in any of our programs? Do you think that the programs should use emotion to a much greater extent? I absolutely do. I think they need information about how to do that better. And I think we as a field are lagging far behind on providing that information, identifying this information. So it's not just the programming that is not okay, right? We need data to put into programmers' hands so they can deliver good products that would address real issues. And then we need to 
get these data and design programming around them so that they can be delivered to the populations in need. Can you think of any other emotional factors that you've come across in your work uh, where these assisted people in joining. So I know you've, you've written about love, for example. I was wondering if you could talk us through some case studies where your work demonstrated that people joined like that. Yeah. So love is, is perhaps easiest to understand, but also mind boggling how somebody could, you know, risk everything and join in a mass killing campaign because of their affinity for another person. And one of the most recent and well-known cases of this is Jokar Tsarnaev, who was one of the two brothers responsible for the Boston Marathon bombing. Now, his older brother, Tamerlan, was the ideologue. He's the one who traveled to Dagestan and Russia and became engaged with radical groups there and then continued to engage with their materials online when he came back to the United States. His life was in shambles. He was going through a messy divorce. He was trying to get into this like athletic career, but was denied because of his immigration status. He didn't fit in in the United States. He felt like an outsider. And it's something that he expressed to others that he didn't understand Americans and didn't feel at home here. Um, and so his radicalization was precipitated by that. But his younger brother, Jokar, was nothing like that. He came to the United States much younger. He didn't have an accent. He was very popular at school. He had friends and girls who were interested in him. Um, he was in college. He was doing really well. But in this culture that they came from, this Dagestani, you know, um, masculinized culture, an older brother is a really, really important person that you admire and listen to and respect. And so when Tamerlan set off on this path, Jokar followed, even though there was nothing that we could identify in his communications, in his behaviors prior to that, that indicated any interest in jihad or, you know, any animosity against America. In fact, he was very, very much, you know, in love with the country. So, this is just an example of how, you know, love can make somebody a terrorist. Are there any other non-ideological factors that you found to be powerful, attractive mechanisms? Like maybe you had a look at small group dynamics or government actions. We know that has known to trigger this. Yes, both of those. Small group dynamics are huge. So out of the 12 mechanisms that Clark McCauley and I identified as leading into terrorism, Six have to do with small group dynamics. Um, it is one of the main findings of social psychology since its inception, how important and yet undetectable most times social influence is. We have studies of Solomon Ash who demonstrated that people will literally call white black and black white. So they will betray the evidence of their own eyes when there is a group around them who say something that they don't believe is true, right? So small groups and just social influence in general are immensely influential on everything we do day to day and, of course, on terrorism as well. And the reason perhaps it is so influential is that we are not very good at detecting it. 
And another thing you brought up that I also think is important in understanding radicalization is government action. So radicalization is never a one-sided process. You know, it is true that terrorism is very salient. We look at 9-11 and it's clear who is responsible for it. These 11 attackers, they are to blame. And then Osama bin Laden who funded them. Yes, no question about it. But there is a lot of influences on them before it happened, right? They didn't just decide to do it. Something led them to it. And then what's more, after 9-11, there were a lot of reactions, for example, of the U.S. government that were actually expected and desired by the terrorists. The reason they did it, in part, was to trigger a cascade of reactions that undermined the United States' moral standing around the world with an invasion that was unjustified and created a lot of casualties of innocent people on the ground and also a lot of grievances among Americans, right, who fought in these wars and, and whose families were devastated by the loss of their loved ones there. And so this back and forth needs to be taken into account when we're trying to understand, prevent, and counter radicalization. So government action is really important as well as small group dynamics, yes. Would you say then that part of the purpose of a terrorist attack is to stimulate an overreaction by the government in order to create that buffet? Some terrorists, yes, absolutely. And in fact, Osama bin Laden and Zawahiri, his second in command, they explicitly stated that that was their purpose in designing 9-11. We call this jujitsu politics, when you're the smaller of two powers and you use the power of your opponent to do your job for you. Okay, okay. Switch gears a little bit. There's been um, a lot of debate recently on the role of social media, the use of algorithms and echo chambers which, which form. Can people become attracted to terrorism by watching online footage and engaging in other online behaviors? What's the state of play on that? So empirically speaking, the answer is yes. I you know, can describe cases for you, one of which is uh, Momin Kawaja, who is a convicted terrorist in Canada, um, who was otherwise doing completely fine. He was a second-generation immigrant. His father was a professor. They had a loving family. He lived with his mother and sisters who still did his laundry, you know. He got a good education. He was a computer programmer. He was making very good money that he, you know, could spend on leisure because um, he was living with his parents still. And yet he got into these jihadist videos online that showed hospitals full of maimed Palestinian children and bombing campaigns carried out by the U.S. government. And these Chechen videos of terrorists there beheading Russian soldiers. And he just couldn't stop watching. And once he started watching, he couldn't stop thinking about it. And thinking about it, he realized he had to do something about it to just feel like a good person. He couldn't not do anything about it. So he started contributing financially, sending money to these people. And then after a while, it just didn't seem enough. You know, the donations were not doing it for him. So he embarked on a journey, traveling to, you know, Al-Qaeda stronghold, but ended up meeting somebody sooner 
in London, a bomb um, explosion in London's uh, public uh, places. And they engaged Mamin Kawaja to design a, an electrical device that would remotely trigger it. So he became an instrumental part in a mass casualty bombing plot just by watching videos. Now, having said that, I have to give you a caveat that what we know about people's engagement with social media is that for the most part, people seek out things that they're interested in on social media. It's not that social media bring them to these things. So they go in, right, they go in already looking for something and then the social media make it so much you know, easier to find than it was before. They probably would have found it somehow, you know, but there is absolutely a huge self-selection current that goes to social media in search of this. Um, and the caveat with that also is that terrorism is such a rare phenomenon, right? So when we're talking about these few, few individuals who engage in it, they are already outliers. And so, you know, even one story like Mamin Kawaja's makes up for, you know, a huge percentage of explanatory power, right? So keeping that in mind, yes, social media made it so much easier for people to find this content. During the 1970s and a few decades after that, there's a lot of focus on the, on the role of dark triad traits like narcissism and psychopathy and whatnot. But then that sort of stopped. But now mental health is back. And I'm just wondering, did radicalization change or were we simply not paying attention to the role of mental health? Good question. So we did pay attention to mental health. We have very good studies of terrorists and even failed suicide bombers. Um, that did extensive diagnostic workups on them. And what we found, you know, in, well into the 90s and early aughts is that terrorists were actually less likely than an average person to have mental health issues. So if you pick a random person in the street and compare them with a terrorist, the person in the street were more likely to have had depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, any of it. And if you think about how terrorist groups operated then, it makes sense because they were mostly face-to-face, -face, these secretive small groups like the 9-11 cell that was, you know, based in, in Germany, right? They had to maintain secrecy. They have to carry out these multi-step, very potentially dangerous operations, even procuring bombing or training to fly a plane, right? And financing and, and all of that. And somebody who is afflicted with mental health problems would just not be able to handle it, first of all, not be able to um, maintain the secrecy, to show up on time, to, you know, be reliable in the way that you had to be to be a terrorist then. And with the internet and social media and smartphones being in everybody's pocket at all times, right? Radicalization is not what it was anymore. People become radicalized in their own home like Kawaja did or the Texas uh, Fort Hood shooter um, Malik Hassan. And so the advent of social media exacerbated already existing 
social issues of loneliness and alienation. So we were already doing badly with that. So radicalization absolutely has changed and we're behind on addressing this. How accurate is the following statement? We're attempting to prevent contemporary radicalization using yesterday's knowledge and tools. I agree. So the thing is, since 9-11, we created these massive institutions and initiatives to deal with terrorism. And it's fantastic. I myself have benefited from them, as have you. And I'm very grateful for the academic field that emerged and burgeoned as a result. And I'm very grateful for the NGOs and government organizations that have been created to help address this issue. But these massive, massive institutions are very slow to change. I think that it's really important to be quick and flexible. And so, Ken, I want to tell you that I am so excited about the hub that you guys are are building because I think this kind of a small and very well-positioned entity has a huge advantage, you know, to really see the changes in the field and to empower individuals and groups that produce important research that addresses these changes and to then deliver information about it to the relevant practitioners. So I am very excited for, for you guys and I'm just, you know, thrilled that the hub exists and I think more things like that are a way forward. Let's let's end with some quick fire questions, right? So as fast as you can, okay? Okay, just a few questions. Question one, can we profile terrorists? No. Can anyone get radicalized? Pretty much. What's the most pressing issue we should be addressing right now? I would say mental health. Are there any PVE initiatives you think we should see more of? I would love to see more PVE initiatives that incorporate mental health, social support, and networking outside of radical groups, and that provide opportunities to satisfy the needs that individuals would seek satisfaction for in radical circles. Are there any myths about radicalization we haven't mentioned yet that you'd like to dispel? People like to think of terrorists as, you know, these crazy people out there far away, nothing like us. And it's a safe thought and it's an easy thought because anger is easier than fear. And putting blame on somebody else is easier than taking responsibility for your own actions and, and ideas. But Everything I know and learned in my research tells me that radicalization happens on both sides. And we have been radicalized a lot after 9-11. All of us carry some anger and some fear toward political institutions and ethnic groups and countries and politicians. And until we begin to look at this side as well as that side, we're going to be missing things, important things. What's the main takeaway you want practitioners and policymakers to know? I would love for practitioners and policymakers and the society to be more aware of emotions. I think it would do all of us a lot of good. So maybe I want to leave that as the main takeaway. If we can start thinking about radicalization and terrorism as not just us versus them, but as one thing 
that we can do well to solve together. I think we would be good. Sofia Moskalenko, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Same here. Thank you so much for having me. Going to Extremes is produced in Doha, Qatar, by the International Hub for Behavioral Insights to Counterterrorism. This series is a product of the United Nations Office of Counterterrorism. The information and opinions presented in this podcast by the guest speakers are those of the speakers. They do not purport to reflect the opinion or views of the UNOCT, the United Nations, or any of its affiliated organizations. For more information, visit our website, un.org forward slash counterterrorism. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at UN underscore OCT and join the conversation using the hashtag going to extremes.